Ivanka, we hardly knew you. And the judge joked that he didn't even know who she was before she started her testimony. I mean, seriously, after a full day of testimony in the New York civil fraud case, seeking to take away all of Trump's everything, Ivanka Trump Kushner, or what I like to call witness number 25 for the state, was the most polished and rehearsed witness called by the Office of Attorney General and feigned moderate interest in the old post office transaction, but did nothing to defend the core allegations against the Trump organization and her father that he lied on his financial statements, and those statements were relied upon by third parties to extend credit, loans, bonds, investments to obtain approvals. And then Trump, being cheap, turned around and deflated the cooked assets to save on taxes. Nor did she do anything to rehabilitate her brothers uh, and what they testified about, all which ultimately supports the Office of Attorney General's case. Despite an unusual cross-examination by Trump's lawyers, Ivanka really didn't help the defense. But it did show why most observers and insiders have long considered Ivanka the smartest of the bunch and the heir apparent to take over the company from Pops. She just trotted out the same tired turns of phrases she used when she was shown the same documents by the Office of Attorney General last year while Trump's lawyers continued their unhinged assault on the court, but not the staff for a change, as they lay the groundwork for an inevitable but failed motion for mistrial. Spoiler alert, it won't be successful. Next, Jack Smith prepares for trial in Washington against Trump, hoping to finish off Trump's lame motions to dismiss the indictments once and for all. Have the D.C. Court of Appeals affirm Judge Chutkin's gag order and to start the jury selection process right after the new year on the way to the March 2024 trial date. And finally, we have the Department of Justice's tart response to Trump's continued efforts to tell the American people and the electorate that he has a First Amendment right to lead a coup, and that his purported subjective belief that he won is enough to inoculate him from criminal liability for using a series of specific lies about the election to his benefit and as part of the criminal scheme. And just in, Judge Chutkin is calling Trump out on his advice of counsel defense, requiring a disclosure of who he relied on and what documents he's using for that defense by no later than January uh, January the 15th. In its first Second Amendment case on gun control since 2022's Bruin decision, the Supreme Court heard oral argument of the case of a violent domestic abuser, Zaki Rahimi, who, while under a restraining order for domestic violence and beating up his girlfriend and the mother of his child, then went on a deranged shooting spree at five separate locations over two months with a gun he never should have had under a law from 1994, which disarms violent people who are the subject of restraining orders. MAGA gun rights activists want to allow all violent people to have guns unless there is an exact historical twin in regulation somewhere from 1787 to 1865 in U.S. history. But even this right-leaning court based on this week's oral arguments, may believe that this is way too literal a reading of their recent pro-gun ownership precedent and will have profoundly dangerous outcomes if they side with Rahimi. 
Speaking of the Supreme Court, and they're not usually caring about real-world consequences, also in 2022, they took away a woman's right to choose, a fundamental constitutional right since 1973, and left it to the states to do something about it. Well, are they ever? Women's rights advocates have mounted successful campaigns to take the issue directly to the people state by state and obtained huge wins this week in Kentucky and Ohio. Not only that, they plan to drive Democrats and women freedom-loving people everywhere to the polls in 2024 by placing bills to enshrine a woman's right to choose in state constitutions in battleground states like Florida, Nevada, Colorado, and Pennsylvania. All this and whatever else we can think of in the time allotted on the midweek edition of the Legal AF Podcast with your co-anchors, Michael Popak and Karen Friedman at Niffalo, exclusively on the Midas Touch Network. Hi, Karen. Hello, Popak. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing fantastic. It's a fantastic yeah. midweek. We've got great developments in New York. We've got abortion rights on the move and obviously going to be a tremendous issue for Democrats come the all-important presidential election in 2024 that we'll talk about. And just great developments in D.C. with Judge Chutkin. You and I both done hot takes on that. What's your overall sense of where we are at the midweek in terms of these consequential legal developments? Well, I mean, we all woke up this morning with some amazing news, uh, right? That that the Democrats fared much better than um, than the MAGA Republicans. So, you know, that I know that's not legal news per se, but it certainly was heartening, especially in the areas of abortion and um, and just the future of our country when it comes to legal news. Because sometimes when I read whether it's what people are saying about certain issues, uh, sometimes I think to myself, I don't, I don't, am I living in the same world as, as, as these people are living? Like it's shocking to me. And so it feels, you know, like the gun case that we're going to talk about today, it, it feels like there's still some rationality out there somewhere that we haven't completely gone insane. Yeah, whether it's Trump related, whether it's the election, abortion, guns, there's hope, and and that's always a good thing. Well, you and I put a lot of trust in juries, for example, and I all, I usually do on the overall American people when they're given this kind of really critical choice, and I think it's right, it's it's appropriate for us to talk about what happened yesterday. We sit at the intersection of law, politics, and justice, and um, your comment about like waking up, like, what world do I live in? It reminds me of last week or so, uh, the comic Nate Bergazzi, who I like a lot, did the um, Saturday Night Live. And he started his monologue with, um, I'm from the 19th century, <laughs> which I wake up thinking I'm from the 19th century because it's in, in certain ways, certainly not when it relates to women's rights, because there I want us to be as progressive as possible, but like on gun control and different things, it's just like, what world am I living in? Haven't we already resolved these issues? And the problem is with this Supreme Court, things that we thought were resolved have been disturbed in, a, in the wrong direction. And now it turns to us state by state, but maybe the best thing, and we'll talk about it at the, at the end of the podcast, maybe the best thing that can ever come out of the Dobbs decision that got leaked in March of 2022 and published 
in uh, in uh, June of 2022 by Judge Alito, Justice Alito, ripping away a woman's right to choose after having it for 50 years as settled precedent, as super precedent, as many of the current members of the Supreme Court said about it when they were in their confirmation hearings, then they ripped it away when they ruled on Dobbs. Maybe the best thing that's ever happened of it, come from it, is it has motivated tremendously women and people who support women and the right to choose to go to the polls in large numbers, and we've seen the outcome. So I know there's a lot of hand-wringing about Joe Biden and some recent polling that's absolutely ridiculous and can't be believed. Joe Biden getting 12% of the black vote and 2% of the Hispanic vote, just not credible. And you, we're, we're so far out from a year, you know, a year from now in terms of polling that make them wholly unreliable. And, and when we see the opportunity for the voter to actually go to the polls, not be polled, not be questioned by somebody randomly sending them a questionnaire or phoning them on the phone or knocking on their door, but actually going to a ballot box, they vote overwhelmingly for Democrat, Democratic ideals and positions. Um, every special election that's matter, the Democrats have won. This uh, off-year election, the Democrats have won, overwhelmingly won, uh, and sent the message that they are ready for the 2024 election. And if that ends up being a choice between a 94 four-time, 91-time indicted, uh, felony indicted ex-president against Joe Biden. They're ready to make that decision. And I don't think it's going to fare well for Donald Trump, even though he's winning the media war in terms of attention grabbing, because Donald Trump having a fit and throwing food in the hallway of a courtroom is a lot more interesting than, than Joe Biden cutting a ribbon about a new chip manufacturing plant or bringing the internet to rural America. And that's the problem. Problem is his, Joe Biden's long, long list of accomplishments domestically and foreign policy-wise is not given the same kind of coverage uh, the way it should be that when Donald Trump throws throws his feces at, you know, at the, uh, at the, at the zookeepers. And that, that's been our problem. And that's why I think Legal AF was invented and why we dive right into these kind of topics. So speaking of feces throwing and Donald Trump, let's return to the sixth week of the Trump trial, the civil fraud case in which if successful, there he is, if successful, Letitia James, Letitia James, the New York Attorney General will take away everything that matters to Donald Trump financially is no other way to put it. Um, and that's that's why you're seeing so much acting out outside the courtroom and Alina Haba, all sorts of ridiculous things. Let's start with, Karen, what you, because you've done a couple of hot takes on it. What have you observed about the split screen between what is going on outside the courtroom, way outside the courtroom, and what is going on with the sober presentation of evidence and now 25, pardon me, total witnesses and documents being used in cross-examination against uh, against Donald Trump is the children are now Ivanka. What have you, give us a big picture as a former prosecutor, as somebody, and that too, and what do you think it means for, for the future prosecutions and current prosecutions of Donald Trump about what's happening in these courtrooms? I think there's a big disconnect between what's going on inside the courtroom and outside the courtroom. And as a result, Letitia James has started making these, what I would call unusual, uh, impromptu speeches, um, public speeches 
almost every day where she just says very short and sweet, she kind of corrects the record because she sits in court every day and she watches what's happening and, and she'll see exactly what, what went on. And then she'll see that Trump goes outside or, or makes a statement about and, and says something the opposite of, of what was done. And she's been correcting it. And, you know, I say it's somewhat unusual because the government, especially prosecutors, even though this is civil, this is like a civil prosecution, um, don't typically talk about an ongoing case or a pending case. It's it's not something that you do publicly. There's ethical rules, local rules, and and laws about it, and you have to be really careful. Um, especially if there's a jury, I, I don't think she would be able to because you have to worry about potentially prejudicing the jury with information that you can't you can't do. So because this is a bench trial, I think she's allowed to. Um, correct the record, which is what she's what she's doing, and you know it's it's just interesting how how they can how they can just say something that's false, right? They could just go out and and say something different. But the other thing I've noticed that's been happening is is when the case is going well for the attorney general and not going well for the defense. That's when the defense attorneys get louder and more indignant and more angry to try to distract, I think, away from what's actually coming out. You know, we, we always had this saying, um, you know, that there's this, this saying in the law, you know, if you can argue the facts, argue the facts. If you can't argue, if you don't have the facts on your side, argue the law. If you have neither, you know, then you pound your fists and make a lot of noise. Um, and that's sort of what they're doing. And and it, it happened with Ivanka as well. When, when Ivanka was starting to answer some questions that she couldn't uh, she couldn't deny, if you will, you know, she, she admitted what she had to, but also couldn't deny certain facts, especially when confronted with, with certain emails. That's when we saw that the, the defense attorneys became quite boisterous and they do the, they, they've started to take on the persona of, of Donald Trump and, you know, accuse the attorney general of, of bias and political, you know, being a political hack and all that. And it choose and, and of course, going after the judge over and over and over, it's this relentless barrage of accusing the judge of bias. And, you know, it's, it's a strange tactic. Um, it's clearly not going, to, I, I think they've clearly made the calculation that they're not going to win the case. And so they want to create an appellate record. And the more you say by, you know, they've, they've preserved the issue, but the more they say bias, 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 bias all day, every day, you know, I think at one point today, um, the, the lawyer for the defense was, was putting on the record that, that the prosecution was laughing. Um, you know, they just want to create this record and create this, this, uh, show and in this appellate record that will hopefully, if you say it enough times, maybe you make it true, even though it's, it, there is no facts to support any of that in this case. Certainly, um, you know, just because the judge already ruled on a motion for summary judgment, something that is entirely proper for a civil judge to do in a civil case based on all of the evidence that has been, you know, the taking all the facts uh, that are are at issue, right? And the ones that are not in dispute. And he already found that, um, that he already found the, a violation of, of executive law 6312 of persistent fraud. And, you know, Trump doesn't like that. Right. So, and, and so that's why they're, they're trying to call that into question. They don't like that. It's a bench trial. I mean, they're, they're doing everything they can. 
and we'll see if they're successful, right? I haven't seen anything yet to demonstrate that, but that this is, I think, what the tactic is. Do you disagree with that? No, it's the tactic, but it's not, it's not going to be successful because it's not an element of 63-12 persistent fraud. What we're watching is the wood chopping, as I like to call it, and the stacking of wood every day, 25 witnesses in six weeks, um, who each one of them scored some sort of point in the in the dots that are being connected so so um, efficiently and so obviously by the New York Attorney General and her happy band of, I almost call them prosecutors because they really are, but happy band of attorney generals, they take turns. I mean, there's about, there's 10 total, there's about five that have taken turns in doing the cross and the direct examination. And they always have the right document ready to blow apart a witness to show that there's, there, it, this is not a complicated case. Just to, just to make this clear for for the umpteenth time on legal AF, this is a very simple fraud that is being painted. This is primary colors fraud: red, blue, green. This is not. This is not like some sophisticated Ponzi scheme. This was. Donald Trump didn't like the numbers that reflected his net worth on his personal financial statement, so he had the numbers changed to, to re, as Michael Cohen put it, to reverse engineer, they would say, what's the number you want, boss? I want to be net worth $6 billion or $4 billion. Okay, then we got to raise the value of each of these things. They weren't instructed, go out and get me new assets that have a lot of equity in them to increase my net worth, because that would add debt onto his balance sheet too. They just said, pump up the numbers. And so Every one of these witnesses has either established that they cook the books, including insiders, people that still work for Donald Trump, at least at last reporting, I don't think for long, ex-employees that are either went to jail or almost went to jail, like Jeff McConney and Alan Weisselberg, then bankers who said that we relied on these personal financial statements in order to make the loan, to give the insurance, to give the surety bond, to allow for the construction of the building. So you have the reliance on it. Like emails, we need your dad's statement of financial condition. Here it is. And then that the thing that was attached is the thing that's been cooked, transmitted by one of the kids or Alan Weisselberg, or Michael Cohen, or whomever, and then the testimony, sometimes not willingly, sometimes they had to pull some teeth from bankers like the woman who was the wealth the wealth management banker at Deutsche Bank, who, who extended the line of credit, so, oh yeah, we were so excited to be in business with Donald Trump. That didn't mean that underwriting in the back, she's the banker, right? She's the salesperson, but she has to go through a loan committee and an underwriter in a bank. This is Bank 101, uh, for not for the, our audience, for Donald Trump, apparently. And they're not going to allow, like, what's his name? Donald Trump? Oh, that's enough. How big? Two billion? Five hundred million? Let's give it to him. Come on. They're like, we got to see his tax returns. We got to see his personal financial statements. For instance, they used as an example with Ivanka, particularly, who was very involved with the Doral. Uh, country club, which I knew well from being down in Florida for 20 years. And this is where the big blue monster is. And, and we've seen a lot of this Saudi Arabian golf being played there, but it's a failing venture. They bought it for a, a hundred and 
25 or 130 million dollars with a Deutsche Bank loan back in the mid 2000s, poured 200 million dollars into it, and it's currently at a lost position uh, because there's just not enough people to stay at that hotel, use the convention center, and play golf to make it work. And the banker said, you know, we gave the loan. One, the, the, the commercial loan department of the bank didn't want to make the loan. The private wealth part of the bank, which is what this banker uh, testified about, gave the loan, but on the condition that Donald Trump's personal net worth be no lower than $2.5 billion at any given time, that he have a certain amount in cash of that. Well, in order to stay at that number, they cooked the books because there were times where his net worth dropped below that number. Now, there's reporting this week that Bloomberg put his net worth at like $4 billion, but that's today. We're talking about in 2012 when he was taking out the loans. His net worth wasn't anywhere near then unless you cooked the books. And so you had that going through Ivanka, where she had to admit, based on documents put in front of her, that yes, there was a requirement of $2.5 billion net worth for my dad. Yes, there was a cash on hand requirement. Yes, we submitted the, uh, the statement of financial condition because the bank relied on it. And, and so that defeats the whole argument in the defense, which has been, we took out loans, we repaid loans. Nobody was injured. The people that were injured is you shouldn't have gotten those loans to begin with. And so the, there was always an, 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 a risk that the bank didn't know they were taking because they were lending to somebody whose bank statements were fraudulent and whose financials, whose financial statements were fraudulent. And that is the fraud that is being alleged. And then you have the intent that has to be proven over this next, let's say next month overall, because that is the last part of the fraud that's up for grabs in this particular part of the case. The judge having found six weeks ago that there was already persistent fraud, accidental or otherwise, in the operation of all things, the Trump organization. So that, that has been the problem. Now, I know it's the, the, the New York Attorney General's case in chief. So we're waiting to see the defense case. There has to be one. But as of right now, on the key witnesses that they're likely to use, uh, understanding that I guess they could still cross-examine these people in their own case, that there's very little, if any, pushback on the narrative that's been established and the evidence that's been established by the New York Attorney General that they cooked the books in order to satisfy Donald Trump's penchant because he wanted to be one of the richest men in the world, people in the world, and for him to obtain loans. Um, and there was reliance on that, and it was done intentionally. And they got a big road to hoe on the defense side when the case finally turns to them in a couple of weeks and they put on all of their witnesses, including ones we've already heard from. Um, so I think the case is going in a very, very positive direction for the New York Attorney General. And don't be fooled, um, our listeners and followers and audience, when you see Alina Haba with her banjo and tambourine on one of these right-wing news media shows saying, the New York Attorney General's not very bright. Talk about projection. Uh, she doesn't really understand real estate. She doesn't really understand what documents say. I mean, Alina Haba should just stop talking. You did a really great hot take about her incompetence. She should really stop talking. Today, she jumped up in court with an objection I've never heard in 32 years, which was when they used the document against um, against Ivanka to signal and coach Ivanka, she stood up, Alina Haba, and said, that email that you're showing her wasn't even sent. By the way, it was. 
<laughs> well, that's what I was about to say. So first of all, that's not a proper objection. That's a coaching objection in order for the witness to be cued in. And Ivanka got all upset, like her father, mm, is that true? Um, and then they, they broke and Ivanka went in the hallway. And then the next set of questions from the examiner established that not only was it sent, but that she responded to the email in the next chain. It was only done to break the rhythm of the examiner, really obviously, and to coach the witness, but that's not an objection. You want to redirect the witness or cross-examine the witness and establish somehow that it wasn't, you 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 can have your turn. First of all, and she, I don't even know why the judge is allowing different um, lawyers for Donald Trump who are not doing, because Alina didn't do the cross-examination of um of Ivanka Suarez did and I don't know why she was allowed to make objections I've always been in a courtroom one lawyer is that your witness if that's your witness you make the objections not like gang objections from whoever woke up and feels like yelling something out in a courtroom none of this is going to have I'll leave it on this I'll turn it back to you and I did a hot take on this none of this is this acting out this running away this hallway press conferences, this coming back late to court, this yelling and screaming is not going to happen in the federal criminal trials with juries present. I assure you, as as God is my witness, and Goron is letting them have free run in his courtroom subject to gag orders and fines because he just wants to get the case over with and have as little for them to argue about due process or appellate issues as possible. But if there were a jury in the box, there is no way on God's green earth he would be allowing what's going on right now. And certainly Judge Chutkin won't. I don't know about Judge Cannon. Judge Chutkin won't allow it. And Judge McAfee, even with cameras present, isn't going to allow it. There's not going to be cameras in federal court. There's not going to be cameras outside federal court. There's not going to be press conferences. Donald Trump's going to have to hold something at six o'clock at night at his peril at the end of each trial day, but he's not going to be able to, he's not, and he has to sit in a chair every day of his trial, even though the primaries are going on and campaigning, he'd love to be campaigning. He's going to have to sit for that two month, three month trial every day in trial come March period. We'll talk about that trial next. Karen, what else do you think about it? And then we'll move on to our other topics. Yeah, it's funny, you know, on Monday when uh, Trump testified, I was on CNN for a couple hours and I get home that day and um, my husband says to me, he says, um, Trump is winning. And I, I looked at him and I said, what are you talking about? He's like, what did Joe Biden do today? You know, nobody's talking about or any of the other Republican candidates. Nobody's talking about it. All we're doing the entire day is talking about Trump. So I don't know that Trump having to sit there every day in a criminal trial with the media, including us, you know, we're gonna be talking about it all day, you know, cause it's outrageous, right? When when you, the, the facts are outrageous, we have to cover it. And he also, after court, he comes out and he tells, he lies, right? He says something different than what actually happened. But somehow he is using that to his advantage. Um, and it, it gets very depressing and very, um, I don't know, it gets very defeating. So I think the more we can call out the truth, I, the better. Um, a couple of things just about Ivanka today uh, that I just wanted to to point out. Um, number one, the thing about Ivanka, she was sort of the opposite of her father, who was, you know, he was described by people in the courtroom uh, who were there just as this 
unhinged, um, bombastic person who was out of control and um, didn't answer questions in any kind of linear way, didn't make sense, very emotional. And, um, and Ivanka, on the other hand, was apparently very poised. And, and she, she did a little of what the, the other, her brothers did, which is the I don't recall um, piece of it. But there were other th parts that she was extremely animated and gave a lot of detail. And it really, I think, helped the government's case because it really showed that she was intimately involved in the negotiations of these loans, right? And, and as you pointed out, the whole part of the, the, you know, at first the Deutsche Bank, um, um, the, the asset, whatever they're called, the wealthy, the wealthy part of the wealthy people part of the bank, which is different than our part of the bank, um, that they wanted him to have a net worth of $3 billion. And she ultimately negotiated it down to the 2.5. So for her to be able to say, oh, I didn't know about his assets or, you know, they were all fixated on his statements of financial condition because they needed them and to get all this, these loans that they were, that they were trying to get to fix up, whether it's the golf course or the, the old post office in Washington, D.C. that they turned into a hotel, also something that Ivanka was very involved in it. So, so it really kind of, you know, at the same time, she didn't, she didn't throw her family under the bus, but she, of all the Trumps, she's known to be the most, um, I guess, she's not going to perjure herself, put it that way. So yeah. she kind of did what she could to you know, thread the needle to not throw her family completely under the bus, but also not to commit perjury. And I think, I think it really helped the, the, the government's case. One other thing I just wanted to say um, is uh, I, maybe I misheard you, Popak, but I think you said there's another month left, you know, the intent part of the case, but I, I, I believe that the, um, that, that the attorney general's office rested today. They rested their director. Oh, was that today was the rest? Yes. Yes. They rested today. All right. So now they're, they're done with their 25. I thought they were going to go another couple of weeks. I know the trial is going to be done before December, middle of they, December. They reserved the right to call right. Al, to recall Alan Weisselberg, but otherwise they rested. All so right. now it's up to the defense to present a case. It'll be interesting to see if Donald Trump does what he promised to do, which is bring bring in the big bankers, you know, to to say, but, oh, we didn't rely. We were going to give them money anyway. They had but the big bankers. They had Rose. Look, his banking was primarily through wealth management, meaning private private banking, the private banking section of the bank, not the bank where regular people go to get commercial loans. And that's the reason. Um, the other reason on the rest thing, you're probably right on that. I probably, I probably was still on my cough syrup when that happened. They'll have a rebuttal case if they want a rebuttal case at the end. So, but yes, that that's a well after twenty five witnesses and all the documents. I think that's probably a very efficient presentation. But the reason that some of these issues that Ivanka seems to be talking about are old, and some people might be wondering, oh, I thought that's the reason she's not a defendant because statute of limitations. Yes, but if it's a continuing fraud issue, even though the loans, let's say, were taken out in 2012, which is beyond the statute of limitations, because let's say the loan wasn't paid off until within the statute of limitations, it therefore makes it uh, relevant and, and the ability for the judge as the trier of fact to hear these issues. But no, I, everything she did, Ivanka did on the stand is the reason that, that uh, Michael Cohen, who knows better, 
uh, said that she's the smartest of the Trump children. And uh, there was long, not even rumors, it was well known in New York circles that you and I, if we're not in them, we at least are adjacent to them, that would often comment that Ivana was grooming her to be not not the brothers, to be the head of the organization when Pops finally kicked it or whatever. Um, I'm not, and just because she moved down to Florida to get away from this trial, basically, doesn't mean that's not in the works in the future. She is the smartest of the three. She is the most like her father in terms of, of um, acumen, business acumen. You saw Don Jr., you know, is always trying out for cocaine bear. And Eric Trump, um, there's a reason that Saturday Night Live made him out to be an infant. Uh, she is the most, has the most poise. Uh, but don't be fooled. Um, there were a number, you know, if you're if you're playing bingo and you're the New York Attorney General, there were a number of times that she hit the bingo card positively for the Attorney General in terms of things that she said, and that's all that they're doing. There's just just to be clear, there is not a chance in heck. There's a snowball chance in hell that um, Judge Engoron, having already found persistent fraud in the violation of 63-12 in New York executive law, is going to somehow find that the other remaining six counts for fraudulent financial statements, fraudulent insurance uh, documents, fraudulent uh, uh, documents and, and record keeping is not going to be proven by the, by the state. I just I think I think Judge Engoron. I think what he's going to do is he's going to throw them one bone. He's going to find not responsible for one of them because with all this accusation, and I'll tell you why, with all this accusation of bias, 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 you had your mind made up ahead of time. I would want on the record if I were him to say, no, I thought about it and I found for you. I mean, if, it, if it's there, if, if he can do it. I think um, if he's going to do that, he'll do it on remedy. I think he doesn't give all seven of the remedies that the government is looking for. He may shave off a couple of dollars on the disgorgement. He may not replace the trustee, take Donald Trust Donald Trump out as trustee. But I, I don't know. I think you're in for a penny, in for a pound with this fraud. And I think it's binary. The light's either on or off. I think mean, they either did all these things or they didn't do them. I'm not sure there's a way, but we'll see. That's the no, yeah, you might be right. I think he'll look yeah. for a way to yeah. do that kind of thing, whether it's the way you said or or I agree. There'll be bone throwing. I'm not sure which bone it will be, but there'll be there'll be bone. But look, that's what keeps us on the air. <laughs> this kind of this kind of speculation, you know, good faith speculation about what will happen next and what will happen next on our show is going to be a breakdown and a discussion of and an update on some really interesting developments that matter in the D.C. election interference case presided over by Judge Chutkin as she prepares this case for a trial in March of 2024. We'll also talk about um, the uh, Supreme Court and what we think based on an oral argument and some comments made by some unlikely justices about what they're going to do in the first case they've had about gun control since they opened the floodgates to guns back in the summer of 2022 in the New York rifle versus Bruin case. And then we'll end it with um, the developments on the abortion rights front uh, using the um, this week's tremendous success by the Democrats in Ohio and Kentucky and talk about what that means for the where the abortion rights 
um, are at present, sort of a snapshot, and what it means for the future in terms of ballot initiatives in the various battleground states. But first, it's one of my favorite times of the show. It's time for our sponsors. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating clean. Let Green Chef take the work out of eating clean this healthy season with chef-created, nutritionist-approved recipes featuring fresh ingredients with nothing artificial. Choose from recipes featuring lean proteins like turkey and sockeye salmon, barramundi, tilapia, scallops and shrimp, certified organic whole fruits, vegetables, and eggs, and plenty of whole grain options. Eat clean the easy way with recipes that help manage your weight and support your wellness goals without skimping on flavor. Feel at your best this November with seasonal recipes featuring certified organic fruits and vegetables, organic cage-free eggs, and sustainably sourced seafood. Also, Green Chef offsets 100% of their delivery emissions, as well as 100% of the plastic in every box. Plus, nearly all packaging materials are curbside recyclable in most areas in the U.S. Deliver everything you need to eat clean the easy way this November. Feel your best with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes packed with clean ingredients that support your healthy lifestyle and taste great too. I love Green Chef. My absolute favorite is the spicy chicken and broccoli stir-fry. It's delicious. For Green Chef's best deal of the year, get $250 off with code LegalAF250 at greenchef.com slash LegalAF250. That's greenchef.com slash LegalAF250 with code LegalAF250. You can't beat this. It's a great deal. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. Thanks for sponsoring this episode. Our next partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it literally every day. I gave AG1 a try because I was tired of taking so many supplements and I wanted a single solution that supports my entire body and covers my nutritional basis every day. I want a better gut health, a boost in energy, immune system support, and wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. I drink AG in the morning to start my day. It makes me feel unstoppable and ready to take on anything. And on top of it all, I'm doing something good for my body. I'm giving my body the nutrition it craves, and I'm covering my nutritional basis. I've tried a ton of different supplements out there, but this is different. And the ingredients are super high quality. I got started with AG1 because I used to take all these different pills and gummies, who knows what, and frankly, what I was taking was expensive, and I didn't even know if it was good for me. But with AG1, I know what I'm consuming has the best ingredients and also tastes delicious. AG1 makes it easier for you to take the highest quality supplements, period. When I started my AG1 journey, very quickly, I noticed that it helps me with improved digestion, energy, and overall, I just feel great. It's just one scoop of powder mixed with water, once a day, making it a seamless and easy daily habit to maintain. I'm asked all the time about the one thing I'd do to take care of my health if I could only pick one. It'd be foundational nutrition, and AG1 is a top foundational nutrition product. Just one daily serving gives me the comprehensive foundational nutrition I need and supports energy, focus, strength, and clarity with 75 high-quality vitamins, probiotics, and whole food-sourced ingredients. I can't think of another daily routine that pays off as well as AG1, which is why I trust the product so much. If you're looking for a simpler, effective investment for your health, try AG1 and get five free AG1 travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash legalaf. That's drinkag1.com slash legalaf. Check it out. You know what I like about doing ads? I can show videos to my dermatologist 
and he can point out things that he wants to biopsy or check. Nice. <laughs> right, nice. right. I went recently. He was like, "Nope, we're gonna we're gonna do that one." So if I didn't have like daily videos of my appearance, you know, a little little byproduct. My mother, by the way, changing the subject, just started using AG One thanks oh. to thanks to Legal AF and the podcast. She loves it. Yeah, no, it's that's good stuff. I like yeah. that's one of the few kind of drinks in that family of types of drinks that I, I like because it's not sweet. It's more umami, as I like to say. I know people are writing in the chat. Did Popak just say mommy? No. Popak, <laughs> he can say mommy, but he didn't say mommy. It just has a more earthy, you know, sort of, you know, mushroomy type taste. Well, that's AG1. So now let's turn to, I don't know, have I said I love Judge Chutkin lately? I really love Judge Chutkin in so many ways. Let me outline a couple of things that are going on, a couple of spinning plates in DC, and then turn it over to my illustrious co-anchor. So we got uh, Judge Chutkin uh, reimpose the gag order um, after full briefing. It then goes up to the Court of Appeals on a standard of review that is very favorable to a trial judge. It's the abuse of discretion standard, which means only if the other side shows that she abuse, abused a very liberal standard of discretion, quality of discretion, is, is it going to be overturned? They don't go over it like all over it again, like all the case law. I mean, they look at the case law, but they really say, did this judge abuse her discretion in imposing the gag order? And under the facts, I'd be shocked if they did. Now, some of the reporting, people got upset because, oh, the appellate court did an administrative stay. Yes, they did, an, just like Judge Chutkin did, an administrative temporary stay of her order. So they a, they temporarily put a pin in the gag uh, until they have time for full briefing. And they set a very aggressive briefing schedule, which will time out for a November 20th hearing, which is right around the corner, just a couple of days before Thanksgiving. And then they'll issue their ruling. In the meantime, if Donald Trump wants to make more evidence to support the gag order, he is free to do so. And and the government is free to have the appellate court take judicial notice of all the dumb and stupid things that Donald Trump says. Now, he's been eerily quiet about attacking witnesses and doing all the things. It's as if he it's it's as if he's still under the gag order, at least at least at the moment. It could change, you know, some four o'clock in the morning screed while he's sitting on the toilet where he's known to do his, his social media posting. It, it could change all of that. But for right now, he seems to be abiding by it. Then Judge Chutkin, all right, they'll rule one way or the other. They'll thumbs up or thumbs down on the gag order. In the meantime, there's a case. Donald Trump filed four separate motions attacking the indictment really late in the game. We're already here, you know, six months after the indictment, and they're just getting around. And it's not like they needed to get, I could see if they needed evidence that was in the millions of pages of documents and audio and video that they were given, and they needed that in order to file the motions, but they didn't need any of that because they didn't cite to any evidence that has been provided to them in discovery by the government. So the only excuse for the late filing is they just want to muck, you know, throw sand in the gears of justice and try to avoid the March trial date. They figured that the timing of it, which Jack Smith called out in his papers. He said, this is just uh, a timing, a weaponized timing of filing motions that they could have filed six months ago that they didn't to try to stop the trial in March. Because that's the Donald Trump's um, goal here. We know from recent reporting that Donald Trump fears having to be in trial and or convicted, obviously, before the election in uh, November, despite his whistling in the graveyard 
issues. We, there's new reporting that a new book by by Jonathan Carl of ABC News called Tired of Winning, his third book in the trilogy about Donald Trump, where he yelled and screamed at Todd Blanche when they when they set the trial date for the Stormy Daniels case to land in March at the time. And he said, you just cost me the election, you effing idiot. He understands, even though he acts like this is every indictment, every every mugshot, every <laughs> every bad ruling against him and gag order is great for him. It's, oh, this is amazing for my, please, more, tired of so much winning. And it's not. And he realizes it in his deepest, darkest moments when he lets the cat out of the bag and the mask slips. And he says, you just cost me the election. Right. Because these aren't good things to happen to a candidate, uh, despite the base of, of the MAGA base. And so, he grips off of it. And, the, and he grips off, right, which is fine. He, he needs the cash, obviously. But then you have this this uh, last two developments. I'll turn it over to you, Karen. One is we're going to we're going to the jury selection process. Uh, the the judge wants a questionnaire finished and developed to be used in early February for the selection of the jury, uh, and wants commentary about that. It's not going to be a televised trial, just to make sure everybody understands that under the federal rules and longstanding precedent, uh, and. Um, and other aspects of jury selection uh, that she wants um, the jury protected in a certain way. And then just today, actually, as we were going on the air, the judge is calling out Donald Trump on his advice of counsel defense and telling him that if you're going to use it, you got to tell me by the 15th of January, who are the lawyers you relied on? And we can make the list. They're all now indicted criminals. Um, and and uh, evidence, what evidence do you have that you actually relied on them? And so you can't, the, the end result of, and I'm doing a hot take on this later today, but the end result of you can't use reliance on advice of counsel to try to defeat criminal intent in a courtroom casually. You're not allowed. You're not allowed to blow the jury's mind and have them question, well, maybe he did listen to a lawyer. This has, there's a rigorous process that's required under the law to use the common law defense of uh, reliance on counsel. And the judge is now setting the ground rules for how that defense is or is not going to be used. Who did you talk to? What were their names? What are the documents or emails, communications that support that you gave them all of the information that they were that was required in order for them to render advice, and that you relied on that advice um, in in committing the crimes that you've been charged with? So that's now just come out. So from a prosecutor and prosecutorial standpoint, walk us through what you're observing about Chutkin gag order, and now this issue about reliance on advice of counsel. I think, look, the, the one thing she's been doing is, you know, it, it's clear that the, the defense attorneys want to delay and, and want a different trial date, right? And they keep asking, every motion is, we need more time, we need more time, we need more time, delay, delay, delay. And she sees right through that. And the one thing I will say is she's very, very conscious of the trial date of March 4th, and she doesn't let it slip. 
uh, unlike Judge Cannon, who keeps giving every indication that she's going to let it slip. Judge Chutkin has said, this is happening. But what she does do is she gives, if they say they need more time, you know, she set a deadline for filing a motion and they say they need more time. She'll say, okay, I'll give you another couple of weeks to do that, but I'm not pushing the ultimate date back. I'll give you a, a couple more weeks to file this motion or I'll extend the deadline for something here. And so I think she's being very, making sure that she's being very reasonable. She's listening to the defense and she's giving them a little bit of leeway when they say they've asked for it. So, so I I think she's she's definitely being a thoughtful down the middle judge and not just only ruling for you know, she's not a Trump hating biased racist judge the way Trump likes to say she is right she's she's being a, a judge a really smart judge um, you know there's still some um, very substantive outstanding motions that need to be ruled on right Trump submitted I think four different motions you know, when you add them up, there was like over 120 pages worth of, of motion practice, you know, and we surmised when he did it, that this was, this was, um, you know, they did it that way because there's, there were page limits, right. For, for motion, for each motion, because judges don't like these, you know, these huge opuses. So they often put page limits on motions to say, this is what the amount of information I think I need to help me make this decision. And rather than having the page limit, you know, abiding by it for all his motions, he broke them up into four different motions and made this one long one. And, um, and, you know, those, they're still outstanding. And, you know, there's, been uh, some government response to it and these but these motions are going to ultimately after there's a, a reply you know there will be decisions on them and you know they're, they're fairly substantive and some of them you can appeal inter you know interlocutory appeal and go up uh, if you know either side can appeal so for example presidential immunity is a big one that he's arguing he's, he's saying you know that his argument is basically I was you know the law you know, I, I'm above the law, you know, the president is above the law. And since the law allows for immunity in civil cases, it must also apply to criminal cases, even though there is no case law that's ever held that it's unclear one way or another, but it just defies common sense, right? That, that Trump, you know, that a president, any Trump could could bribe officials or could sell nuclear secrets to a foreign government or could, you know, whatever. Like there's so many things they could do while president that it makes no sense that they couldn't be prosecuted for, right? Even if it's technically, he'll say, oh, it's within the bounds of what my job was, right? I, I'm supposed to deal with foreign governments, but you're not allowed to, you know, illegally sell nuclear secrets kind of thing. So, you know, it doesn't make any sense that that would be this, you know, ultimate kind of you can you can um do whatever you want and not have any consequence but you know what they're they're going to make this argument and you know they're going to the judge is going to have to rule on it and, and find you know even if there is some form of presidential immunity for some criminal activity they're going to have the judge will have to make a finding that this that this conduct falls outside of what's allowed. So, so that's still something that needs to be resolved and could be appealed. And, you know, let's say the Supreme Court would want to rule on any of these motions that, that are still outstanding. You know, I, I still worry a little bit that, that the, 
trial date could be slightly slippery as a result. You know, the the other motion, you know, one of the other motions had to do with um, constitutional grounds. And I think this is why he hired Chris Keiss, who was a former solicitor general of Florida. And, and for, for non-lawyers out there, a solicitor general is like the government, it's, it's the government version of the really smart lawyer who argues to the highest court of appeals, right? Whether it's the Supreme Court or in, in the state. And they're the ones who bring these arguments on behalf of the government um, at this high appellate level. So, so you know, if you're a solicitor general, you're a constitutional lawyer, you're, you're a, a decent lawyer. And, and Chris Keiss, you know, has, has that reputation. And I think these four motions that were submitted, I think, were really what he was hired to do. Um, but so this next one, this the one on constitutional grounds, you know, that there's a couple of, he, he wrapped up a bunch of arguments into this one. One was, you know, he had a First Amendment right to give voice to the millions of people who thought he won the election. Number two, that uh, double jeopardy applies because he was acquitted in the Senate for the same charges. Uh, and so therefore you, you can only charge, you know, you can only prosecute him once. Um, and he also says that since the constitution says the remedy for a, a president is to impeach and then convict and impeach. And then it says in the constitution, and then he can be indicted if he's convicted on the impeachment impeachment that that bars any, any ability to prosecute him if he's not convicted with the, with it. But again, it's like he, he's reading something into the law that's not necessarily there and it's unclear, but who knows what the Supreme Court would do. And then the third constitutional argument he made was a due process violation saying, you know, he, he didn't have notice that, you know, he basically said that the law is vague. Um, the third motion that, that they filed was, was on uh, statutory grounds. They basically said um, they don't like the way the indictment reads. They said it doesn't give enough spec specific information. Um, but that that one's going to fail for sure, because indictments are supposed to be bare bones on their face. So I don't have any worry about that one at all. And I also am not worried at all about the fourth motion that they submitted the selective and vindictive prosecution, those rarely succeed, you, you know, and, and that argument there is where Trump said, you know, they, they went after me in a vindictive way, selectively, and it's not, you know, and, and that that doesn't work usually because, you know, you have to show that the prosecution, that the decision to charge him had a, a discriminatory purpose. And, um, and I think he's going to fail on the law and on any facts there. So, so those are still very substantive motions that are out there that Judge Chutkin, I think, will make a great record on those. But it's the interim appellate uh, piece of it that I that I'm a little bit worried about. What about you, Popak, on those? The thing I like, no, the thing I like best about Jack Smith's. Um, Caught me at a snack. We start again. Sometimes I snack on on my co-anchors. <laughs> it stays in the pot. Um, I liked about Jack Smith and his responses. He he's solving the riddle that we that Donald Trump keeps putting out there. That since I believed in good faith that I won the election, everything I did is completely absolved all my criminality. No. Even the Jack Smith actually said in his recent filings, even if Donald Trump reasonably believed and he can provide evidence to show that he had a reasonable belief at any given moment that he had actually won the election and not lost it, the specific lies 
that he used at any given time, which are all listed in the Jack Smith opposition papers, dead Georgia voters, dead Nevada voters, dead Colorado voters, software flipping votes from Trump to Biden, all lies. Oh, okay. We got we got breaking news we're going to break into here. I'll come back to my point, but I think this is important. There's been a trial in Minnesota, and it went up to the Minnesota Supreme Court at the same time the Colorado was trying the case of whether the 14th Amendment, Article 3, banned Donald Trump from the ballot, Colorado, Minnesota, Michigan. They're all considering these cases in different ways. And while things are looking good for banning Donald Trump in Colorado, we, on the weekend edition... Ben and I speculated based on the oral argument there. We'll be talking about oral arguments later in the Supreme Court. Um, the based on oral arguments and statements made by even the Chief Justice of Minnesota that it was unlikely that they were going to bar Donald Trump in Minnesota, instead finding that it was a political question and that it was something for Congress to take up. Exactly the opposite of what the Colorado uh, the Denver, Colorado trial judge is uh, has already ruled. She said it's exactly the type of thing that judges have to consider, which is the interpretation of the Constitution. And I don't need help from Congress in order to do that. But Minnesota has just come out as we're on the air uh, with a ruling that is going to permit Donald Trump to be on the state's Republican presidential primary ballot. They said that a new petition could be filed challenging his eligibility for the general election ballot. But, you know, based on their um, here denying the petition without prejudice for the general election, you've got a and and signed by that chief judge uh, Hudson that I said out loud during the oral arguments. And why if it if we could do this, should we do this? This seems like a political question for Congress. You know, Ben and I were like, there's no way that, that we're going to win in Minnesota on this issue. And there's the proof of the pudding is in the tasting. We've got the new ruling that just come out. Karen, you want to comment on that before I double back on Jack Smith and we complete this segment? Yeah, like, look, these are ones to watch all of these. You know, I, I'd be very surprised if he's kept off the ballot. I mean, you know, he, of course, he shouldn't be on the ballot because for the for the obvious reasons that, you know, the 14th Amendment disqualifies him. But I, again, I, I hate that it would then allow him to say, you know, to, to say the election was stolen from him if he's not on the ballot. I want him to be on every ballot and I want him to lose fair and square. And, you know, he'll still claim it was stolen, you know, somehow. But but I do I do have very mixed feelings about. about yeah. the We'll continue to follow it. And, uh, Colorado's got one that's going to, I think we're going to get a ruling from that judge any day now. Uh, Minnesota, no surprise. Nobody should be shocked by this one. And my last point on Jack Smith was he, having outlined all the fake lies that Donald Trump relied upon to pressure election officials, elected officials, Mike Pence, dead Georgia voters, dead Colorado voters, software that was fraudulently flipping votes. None of that was true. All of that was debunked. None of that could a reasonable person have relied upon. They said in their filing, even at some point, if he had a reasonable belief that he won the election and we don't see it, these the use of these specific lies in and of themselves is the conspiracy, is the crime. And so you don't get a pass because at some point in the continuum, you may or may not have been right. You were wrong about these things and you knew or should have known that they were fake and false and you use them anyway. So 
That's what we got going on with Judge Chutkin, who I agree with you. There could be some slippage, Karen, on the um, on the date. We got two backup trials ready to step in. We've got one that's still on the books for the 24th of March with Judge and uh, Judge Mershon in the Stormy Daniels hush money cover-up affair and the books and records fraud as it results. And we got Judge McAfee and Fonnie Willis waiting, I think, champing at the bit to file to to get their Trump Georgia election interference and conspiracy RICO case up on the map. So if it slips, I think there's two backups that'll quickly slide in to that spot. One already already being on the books. We're going to talk next about the U.S. Supreme Court considering for the first time since last summer if any gun control and disarming of violent people is going to be uh, permitted under the U.S. Constitution and their interpretation of the Second Amendment. Um, and we're going to talk about all those things. But first, our final word from our sponsors. With my active recording schedule and law practice, I can't function without a great night's sleep. And the bed's temperature in my old bed always seemed wrong. It was either too hot or too cold, but never just right, making for a terrible night's sleep. But I'm so excited to say that this episode is brought to you by Eight Sleep. There's nothing worse than tossing, turning, or sweating in the night because you're uncomfortably hot or cold. The pod cover by 8sleep will keep you cool all night, all the way down to 55 degrees if you want to, or make you feel warmer for the fall and winter months. So you wake up fully refreshed. The pod cover by 8sleep fits on any bed like a fitted sheet. The pod cover will improve your sleep by automatically adjusting the temperature on each side of the bed based on your and your partner's individual needs. It can cool down and warm up and adjust based on the phases of your sleep and the environment that you are in. I love eight sleep. Look, we spent almost half our lives in bed. So improving our sleep routine, habits, and overall sleep quality should be a priority for everyone. I love the temperature control and that both my wife and I can set our side to each of our likings. I also love the gentle vibrating alarm option for each morning. I wake up feeling refreshed after a great night's sleep, allowing me to start the day off right. Eight Sleep's technology is incredible. While temperature is the biggest game changer, the pod cover has other amazing features. For example, thanks to the pod's sleep and health tracking, you can wake up to a personalized sleep report for each morning that offers insights on how certain behaviors like late night exercise or that cup of caffeinated tea or coffee can impact your sleep and overall health. The pod cover by 8sleep truly provides the ultimate sleep experience. I've never experienced sleep like this, and the pod's cooling and heating technology has been a lifesaver. Invest in the rest you deserve with 8sleep pod. Go to 8sleep.com slash legalaf and save $150 on the pod cover. That's the best offer you'll find, but you must visit 8sleep.com slash legalaf for the $150 off. Stay cool with 8sleep. Now shipping within the US, Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia. We're back. Time to dive in to our last two topics. First is going to be the Supreme Court and its oral argument about what type of disarming of violent people are we going to allow, or this Supreme Court going to allow, since it um, it ruled last summer in the Bruin case that everybody gets the right to have a gun and there can be no legislation of gun control unless there's a historical antecedent, a historical twin, showing that there was some sort of regulation 
that was either identical or similar on the books between the time of the Bill of Rights passage in 1797 and the Civil War in 1865. Just a random period of time that Clarence Thomas chose when he wrote the decision, uh, the Bruin decision. Now, courts, federal courts have been struggling with what the heck that means ever since. Most of them siding with, nope, that regulation wouldn't have been between 1797 and 1865, so let's get rid of that. Age limits on the ability to buy a gun in Texas, take that off the books. There were no age limits. 12-year-olds, six-year-olds can buy a six-shooter in Texas at this rate. Uh, and other states have also struggling with it. And now it's come to a head in a very disgusting and ugly case factually, which our, this Supreme Court led by the right wing usually doesn't care about the facts at all. They don't care about the case. They, they're just ready to issue rulings, even if there's no live controversy in front of them. We've seen that time and time again, especially in the religious sphere and the separation, the non-existent separation of church and state under the current Supreme Court composition. But here are the facts I think really mattered and disturbed the justices and woke them up out of their slumber about real world consequences of their decision making. And I'll lay it out and then we'll, then we'll talk about it. You've got a, talk about a terrible vehicle for the, uh, the issue. Gun control activists, sorry, gun rights activists have been saying that since there was no regulation on the books during that historical period that I outlined in old timey days to take away a person's right to own a gun subject to a restraining order in for domestic violence, then that person should not be disarmed and they have a second amendment right. Let's set aside for a minute that back in the old timey days, women were not considered equals of men. And they were considered in many places to be property owned by their husbands and men. Let's put that aside for a minute. So of course there weren't like the concept of restraining orders for domestic violence during that period. Uh, and so you had the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in Louisiana, which has been the bane of the Biden administration. And most of their most of the rulings against Biden's policies have come out of the Fifth, which is really right tilting, right right leaning. Two thirds of their judges are right right wing appointed. They first ruled before the gun control case that I uh, the gun rights case I talked about the Bruin case in the summer of 2022, written by Clarence Thomas, they first ruled, sure, that seems to be a legitimate public policy not to have violent and dangerous people own guns and have guns. And so that felony that's been on the books since 1994 is fine. Then Bruin came out and they reversed course and they said, nope, there's no domestic violence kind of law in the books during that period. So it's okay that it had a gun. Now, let me explain who this guy is and all people that he represents, right? He is the prototype of what we're talking about. He abused his girlfriend so terribly, he threw her down in a parking lot, dragged her into his car, hit her head, damaged her head inside the car. She was also the mother of his children. She got a restraining order against him on these facts and others, which would have prevented him under the 1994 law to own a gun. But he got a gun, and two months later, during a series of a shooting spree, lasted over two months in six different locations, he pulled out his gun during a, a car accident and fired at the person that he had the car accident with. 
He fired at another woman and missed her. And then, and then my all-time favorite, he was at a fast food restaurant with a friend whose credit card was declined for the fast food, and he pulled out a gun and fired it into the air like he was in the wild, wild west. That's the, that is the case that's traveled up to the Supreme Court for the proposition that this guy and everybody who's a violent offender like this guy has the right to have a gun. Now, he was charged with 11 other felony counts in Texas, but the one that he's fighting is the one related to his ability to have a gun. So the Supreme Court held oral argument. We're in Supreme Court season. Starts in October, ends around June, and they're now in the second month of hearing oral argument on cases that they've decided. These are fully briefed. This is the final opportunity for the advocates to make their case in front of the nine-member Supreme Court. You got... You've got uh, Liz Elizabeth Prolinger, who's the, uh, the Solicitor General, as Karen described what a Solicitor General is for the United States, advocating for the United States of America, the Biden position. And you had this lawyer, I'm not sure who, this random lawyer for uh, the plain, uh, for the, uh, the appellant, who got all tied up in knots really, really quickly by some relatively easy questions. The questions like, where do you draw the line? What class of person do you think should be disarmed in our society? And he basically couldn't come up with one. And they said, well, what about, why is this statute violative of our decision in the summer of 2022? And he said, because there's no historical twin. There's no matching law from that old timey period, and therefore it won't survive. And And to which the government said, you're being too literal. If in the past they regulated and disarmed people who were dangerous, this is a class of cases where uh, this is a law that disarms dangerous people. Dangerous people disarmament seems to be okay under this 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 analysis that we're using. This this, this phony historical analysis that Clarence Thomas came up with it doesn't even make any sense. Uh, and but you look at it that way broadly. You don't look at it like. Was there a thing on the books against women being beat up by their husbands? The answer to that is no, unfortunately. That's the world that we lived in back then. So, and they and the judges, including the right wing, bought into the, the Biden administration position and said to, and this is my favorite part, Karen, uh, they asked the question of the advocate for the appellant, the violent appellant, and said, is your client a violent person? Would you, would you consider him to be a violent person? And rather than maintain your credibility as an advocate of the Supreme Court and basically say that a person that you know shot up people in six different incidences and beat up his girlfriend was a violent person, he said instead, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. To which Chief Justice Roberts, who didn't ask the question, jumped into the oral argument and said, well, somebody that shoots at other people is probably a good start, right? That that went quickly downhill for this advocate. At one point, Justice Kagan said, <coughs> pardon me, I'm getting over a cold. <clears throat> Justice Kagan said, you seem to be running away from your argument very, very quickly because you can't stand for the logical conclusion or the extension of your argument. And since it makes no sense, you seem to be trying to run away from it right here in front of us, aren't you? 
So based on the view, what do you think, based on the reporting of the oral argument, Karen, what do you think this, even this right-wing Supreme Court's going to do with disarming violent people subject to restraining orders? Are they going to have a gun in our society or not? Oh, thank God. It seems like they're going to do the right thing. And for once, I mean, because so many of the decisions that the Supreme Court has come down with are just these head scratchers, right? Dobbs being one of them. And then the um, New York State uh, Rifle Association versus Bruin, which is the gun case you talked about that came down in New York recently, was another. You know, they start talking about this, you know, if it's not in the law um, from from the olden days at the time the framers were were um, drafting the Constitution, then then it has to be legislated. You can't just you can't just you know you can't do it. And so you know it's it's really um, it's really looks like they're going to s- maintain that if there's a domestic violence restraining order in effect. And let's just for a minute unpack what that is. Right, that means that a person, uh, could be a woman, could be a man who's in a intimate partner relationship uh, with your partner. And um, you can be married or not, depends on on different states uh, have different laws with what what makes it domestic violence as opposed to just violence. And, um, and, uh, And so it means that you've gone to law enforcement and you've gone to court, either you've gone to criminal court and you have started a prosecution and uh, there a judge will issue what's called a restraining order, uh, or you've gone to family court and initiated a family court proceeding and a judge there has issued a restraining order. So there is some judicial finding that there is enough you know, it's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt that you have to show to get a restraining order, but you do have to allege facts that are saying that there's been some kind of violence, a crime has been committed, whatever. You can't just go in and say, oh, you know what? I don't like my husband anymore. He he's, you know, he chews with his mouth open and I want a divorce. So I want a restraining order. He bugs me. You know, that you won't get one. You you have to sh- you have to make a finding that the person is, you know, or an allegation that the person is violent. You know, you and you have to put facts on the record. It has to be requested to a judge and then the judge orders it and you have to serve it on the person and then they put it in a database and the database is what when you go buy a gun that they do a background check one of the things they check is this database and you know one of the things that came out in these oral arguments was that uh more than 75,000 attempts to buy firearms were by people who were subject to a domestic violence restraining order but it was rejected because of the federal background check program, which means the law is working. That means 75,000 times somebody who's already been found by the court to be violent or dangerous to their intimate partner has gone to purchase a gun and the background check, enter, you know, they enter the, the federally licensed firearm dealer enters the information in the background check system and they rejected it because of the, the restraining order. So it, 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 it shows that it works. And there's so many statistics out there about how, how the, you know, in terms of violent crime, you know, you're, you're very, you're much more likely to have something happen at home than by a stranger or by someone, you know, kind of thing. And there, there's so much, there's so many 
there there's so many examples and statistics and studies about domestic violence and gun violence um and so i think this is just so rational right this is so incredibly rational and and it's not infringing upon um a second amendment you know the the, the second amendment is not absolute right and i think this is where you where the balance is struck where there's a judicial finding and there's a, a judicial order and you know i think they're going to i think they're going to um uphold it you know this is one of those cases that you wonder why would they have taken this case up to the Supreme Court? You know, they say bad facts make bad law, you know? Um, and th this is one of those with bad facts, right? This guy is such a bad guy, right? He was a drug dealer. He assaulted his girlfriend. He threatened to shoot her if she told anyone. She went and got a restraining order, which suspended his already, he had a handgun license, but then he defied that order and threatened a different woman with a gun and shot, you know, as you, all the facts that you, that you, um, said, and, you know, in the space of two months, open fire in public five times, like this guy is not somebody that anyone's going to go out on a limb for. So I was surprised actually that I, this was the fact that went up. I think they're concerned of the world they created with the Bruin decision and the federal courts all struggling with what it means. And most of them interpreting it, I think wrong to say, oh, we can't find a historical twin that matches exactly and maps exactly with what we're looking at here. Let's get rid of it. Uh, and, you know, listen, Clarence Thomas wrote a terrible decision. You know, um, the court that wrote the Roe versus Wade decision gets a lot of grief for, you know, indefensible scientific pseudoscience leading to the results of a woman's right to choose and it was wrong when written and void ab initio and all the arguments they made when they ripped it apart in Dobbs. But this this framework that that uh, Clarence Thomas just created, which is uh, one, historically inaccurate in looking at medieval times all the way up to our time of and his random pick of the Bill of Rights through 1865, no later, no earlier. I mean, just the whole thing just smacks of reverse engineering in order to get people to be able to carry firearms at all costs. I mean, there wasn't a, a database for people to register as firearm owners back then, but you see between the ghost guns, there's really been two cases that they've heard. One is the ghost, <clears throat> the ghost guns and what they're going to do with that you know, being able to manufacture them at home with home kits or 3D printers and not having any, but it is, but it's a gun and not have it registered in any way. They're going to make a ruling, I think, about that. That's going to say you can regulate those. And then this kind of case, which you said is is just terrible facts. Maybe it's maybe it's to give them cover from the gun lobby group to say, well, what do you want us to do? Look at the facts here. They're terrible. A guy pulled out a gun, fired two different women and Fired it off at a at a at a um, fast food restaurant. So, but uh, we'll we'll see. But um, good news is that if we don't like what the Supreme Court does in terms of federal constitutional rights and laws, we the people have the right to change it at the ballot box, state by state, pursuant to our own individual state constitutions. And that is the angle of attack that abortion rights, um, right to choose advocates are using in all of the states, wherever they can get it in 2023 and, uh, and coming up in 2024 for the election. And the good news is we just saw 
two really amazing wins in um, Virginia. Uh, Youngkin, who was touted to be a presidential candidate even this year, you know, for 2024, just got his head handed to him. And both houses, the um, whatever they call the assembly there, and the Senate in in um, Virginia went totally blue. They flipped to one of the houses. They they flipped the assembly, and now whatever he Yunkin was on his legislative agenda is over. Uh, here's some very happy celebratory people there on getting that to happen. And he had on his desk just waiting for him to get the numbers and have Republicans in control. He was ready to pass a 15-week, uh, what they like to call the kinder, gentler abortion ban at 15 weeks with an exception for incest and rape. But uh, that's not what the right to choose and Democrats really want as part of the right, a woman's right. So he's now not going to be able to shove that down their throat um, at all. And people, the women are back in the driver's seat in Virginia. Ohio took it one step further. They actually had a constitutional amendment on the ballot, along with one about weed and marijuana. I love the pairing of that. Both of those won, by the way. Um, so issue one, uh, which is how it was framed in Ohio, is a constitutional now enshrined in the Constitution of Ohio, a woman's right to choose up to 24 weeks to have an abortion. It currently was 22 weeks. They even bumped it up to 24 weeks, which is even beyond Roe versus Wade. So that is a tremendous win and a blueprint and a roadmap for what these advocates will do. And it is it was such a uh, powerful, galvanizing um, uh, po uh, policy and vote that it drew so many Democrats to the polls to win this by overwhelming numbers. It wasn't even close. It was seven point a seven point victory for uh, for women's rights and for democratic ideals. So smartly, the abortion rights activists are putting these things on the ballot for major battleground states. I don't want to say to help Joe Biden because it's important independently that these things occur. But what what did you think about it? Give it to, you know, I'll shut up. Give it to me from your perspective. And then what do you think it will do as a, uh, to help the Democrats and Joe Biden in 2024, even if people are holding their nose for some reason about Joe Biden, and I can't for the life of me figure out why, um, what will this, in your view, be enough to get people to go to the polls and while they're there, by the way, vote for Joe Biden. This this issue, you know, at first blush seems like, oh, a, a major victory for abortion rights. And it's going to be in the Ohio Constitution. And this means abortion is protected for all time in Ohio. But I want people to not get too comfortable because yes, that is true. And it will be great for Democrats. Uh, hopefully, if the Republicans continue to push on this, hopefully that'll push people over to the Democrats come 2024 who are, who are on the fence. But the reason I'm hesitant is there's still a lot of 
nonsense and mischievous stuff that the Republicans and the the, the pro-life anti-abortion crew can do in places like Ohio. For example, they can still, there, there are laws in the books right now in Ohio, in addition to the six-week abortion ban that will obviously be now unconstitutional under their under their law. But there's all sorts of other laws on the books in Ohio, like parental consent is required for minors, okay? Some people might think that's reasonable. However, there's also laws about who can perform the abortion. It has to be a doctor. What kind of facility? You have to have a facility that's that's licensed and part and that's affiliated with a hospital. Well, what if one a clinic is not that close to a hospital? And you know what what you must have informed consent. You know you must. I mean, just all that kind of stuff. Who are the ones who can dispense abortion meds? Can it be a physician's assistant, for example, or only a doctor? So you know the the Ohio considers abortion clinics to be like ambulatory surgical centers and and therefore they already are, are highly regulated but they could still make it really difficult for uh, for women to be able to have access to to abortion or to abortion pills um, and so just this is something that you just got you can't ever let your guard down because they can make a lot of mischief and and they're gonna have to clean up some of these laws I think in order to really increase the access but I do think it's incredibly hopeful um, and I think it's going to look you know women I think at the end of the day you can't take away women's rights without consequence and women are going to come out and they're going to they're going to support that and they're going to make sure that um that you know the the right the crazy right um extremists don't go too far you know even if even if they're right leaning and what does it mean for democrats and and joe biden i think it's tricky you know i spend a lot of time talking to close friends close family and even among very liberal Democrats, Joe Biden for is just not popular, you know, and most people think he's too old to run and he doesn't have the stamina and he's, he's just, just too old. And, and other people, you know, they, they really just think the economy is, you know, in, in their pocketbook, in their wallet, they feel like they're not better off. And, the, and, and that at the end of the day there, I don't think, I don't think that Joe Biden, I think he's going to, you know, he can't do anything about the age, the economy, hopefully he'll focus on. And it, but I think we have to stop just looking at polls and saying, oh, my God, you know, there was a poll that came out the day before the elections. Basically, it seemed like it was going to be a red wave, you know, on, on election day, but it wasn't. So I think we can get used to the fact that people might not love Joe Biden and might not even like him, but that doesn't mean they won't vote for him ultimately, right? That doesn't mean at the end of the day, when it's just you in the ballot box and you're thinking about what to check, you know, I think people are going to think long and hard picking Trump. I don't, I don't know how anyone in good con with their good, with, with a conscience actually um, is going to be able to vote for him, whether you like Biden or not. But I do think people are a little disheartened that that's all we have are these two, you know, I, I love Joe Biden. Don't get me wrong, but you know, it is, it, it, I think people would love to have someone younger um, and someone who, you know, isn't in their eighties. Trump as well will be well into his eighties if he were to win, you know, the presidency. So it just seems kind of strange that this is the best we have in this country. And I think people are feeling that, but, but I do think that, that 
when you look at the results of the election, you look at the abortion, um, the the way people came out for abortion, I, I do think people have had enough and, and the right wing has just gone way too far in the Dobbs decision. You know, as 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 tragic and horrific as it was, I think has has done a decent job at propelling Democrats uh, in in various elections because I think people can see how how dangerous um, some of the extreme right wing Republicans are. So, so I think I think that's I think that's where we are. But a lot still has to be done in places like Ohio to make sure that that women have access to to this medical care. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm encouraged by it. And I think it's going to be a good wedge issue that the Democrats can use to their advantage. I'm, I'm, I'm hand-wringing about Joe Biden has to stop. Um, just like the hand-wringing over Hillary Clinton led to Donald Trump, which led to a supermajority on the Supreme Court taking away a woman's rights to choose. At a certain point, the Democrats have to stop with the hand-wringing, have to stop with the um, hold their nose and vote for the only person that's on the ballot that has a D next to their name happens to be the incumbent president. And it's a fun parlor game to talk about what if and I wish and maybe there was somebody else. And what about Gretchen Whitmer? What about Gavin Newsom? And oh, you know, if Kamala was stronger. But we got to stop with the parlor games because this is we're talking about real life consequences here. And um, as I told people back in the day with Hillary Clinton, I don't care whether you like her or not. I don't care whether you want to have a beer with Hillary Clinton. The choice for me then was clear and is clear now. You either vote for the Democrat and hope that the Supreme Court, we have a few openings there to kind of change its composition, but certainly don't make it any worse and avoid a, a, the, the restoration of Donald Trump in every way that I mean that, including a retaliatory president that uses the Department of Justice and weaponizes it and hollows out all other agencies that we care about. So while I think it's interesting and it's fun and <clears throat> not fun, but it's interesting and it's great conversation. It, there's just no other option other than to reelect the president. And if, you know, 91 or whatever it is, felony counts and two criminal trials and an impeachment and a rape, a rape charge that's proven in a civil court doesn't do it. I don't know what will, but I have more faith in the American people. And if anybody questions Joe Biden's stamina, then they should have been on the plane with him for his visits to Israel and flip turn to other places in the Middle East and come back and do his job as opposed to go golfing or, you know, hang out at, you know, one of the Trump properties, which was what Donald Trump did all the time, spending little, very little time and very little interest in the White House. I don't know why people think Donald Trump has more stamina. He, the reporting is he spent no more than five hours a day being the president of the United States. He didn't really walk into the job until 11 or 1130 in the morning. He quit by four. He spent most of his time not reading his briefing books and being briefed by people that knew what they were talking about, but watching Fox News and, and or going on Fox News and surrounding himself with a bunch of sycophants that shouldn't have been within a mile of the White House. And I don't know why people... I'm not even sure who those people are, but I'm not sure why people would want him to return to the White House. Um, the economy is humming in a certain direction. It is generally good uh, overall, and all the in, in indexes say, say it is. Um, gas prices, sure, what are they? they? They ticked up a bit during wartime. We're in the middle of two major wars in, the, in that region that are very important to America's principles, but that I think the stewardship of 
of uh, Joe Biden and his Secretary of State and all of that is is doing exceedingly well, um, and is having the desired outcome in those in those foreign places. So foreign places I think are doing well, and domestic places are doing well. The analogy, since we talk about history, the analogy for Donald Trump, I mean for Joe Biden, is is Harry Truman. Harry Truman took a lot of crap during his first term. He came off of a very popular president. And uh, even even when he left office, Harry Truman, he was ranked in the bottom quartile of presidents when he in the first five or 10 years after he left office. He is now considered a top five president. And um, I, I mean, that's that's, you know, a little bit of solace for for Joe Biden. I don't think he's going to be a one term president at all. And I think if his closest analogy historically is Harry Truman, we'll all be doing pretty well. But um, he just doesn't. There's just a disconnect that has to be closed, a mismatch between his accomplishments and the uh, and the electorate's feeling about him, at least in polling. He's got a year to make his case. I mean, it's, it's like a trial lawyer. He's got a year to make his case to the American people that he is there is no other alternative but but to Joe Biden. And we'll continue to watch it here. Karen, me, Ben, Mycellus at the intersection of law, politics, and justice. One place on the Midas Touch Network on Legal AF, the leading podcast of its type. And in, we don't do it here. We do it in hot takes about every hour between the leaders of Legal AF and our 75 years of collective experience. Karen on the on the, primarily on the defense, on the prosecutor side, and Ben and me on the defense side. So we've reached the end of another it, uh, edition of Legal AF Midweek. Um, and uh, we'll pick it up again on Saturday with whatever happened between Wednesday and Saturday. We'll pick it up with Ben Mycellus and me um, then. Karen, you want to say something? Last word? You love the Great. last word. Well, I I, mean, I want to congratulate you. You have a big weekend coming up. <laughs> I do. Do we want to share it with everybody? <laughs> people love have, hearing. Yeah, I have a, another personal development. But people think I people think rightly so. I got married already in you, September. But we're having uh, what I like to joke. Um, I have I'm having my third wedding to the same woman in in a three month span. We had a civil ceremony in September. We had a religious ceremony in October, and we're having sort of a, a non-sectarian ceremony slash party <laughs> in in uh, in South Florida, where we both have a lot of friends and people are flying in from different places. And if it wasn't for some other issues, Karen would be there with me, and Ben's going to be there with me. I wish I could be there. I know, so I know. congrats to you and Thank your you. lovely bride. Thank you very much. Have the best time ever. I will. And until the next hot takes for Karen and me and the next Legal AF, this is Michael Popak wishing all the Legal AFers and the Midas Mighty shout outs until next week. Legal AF.